Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series today, A New Nation, a study in the book of Genesis, with a message entitled, God's Good Purposes. So turning your Bibles to Genesis 50, verses 15 to 26, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Read the Bible for a lifetime. You know, here's one of the things you're going to learn. You'll finally begin to understand the ways of God. You know, one of the things everyone says at some time in his or her life is, where is God? You know, in Psalm 73, the psalmist observed the prosperity of the wicked, and he said he almost lost his faith over that. And indeed, the Bible is not unaware about the question of injustice and the fact that at many times God seems to be silent. I mean, why doesn't God intervene? So let me begin at the very start of my message to let the cat out of the bag and get right to my conclusion. I'm about to quote a passage from the book of Acts, and the context of that quote is that Peter and John have just been arrested for healing a man in the name of Jesus. And then the religious leaders have made a ruling that no one was to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And and of course, as we can imagine, that put the apostles on a collision course with the ruling Jewish Sanhedrin. And so in consequence of what was surely going to end badly, the newly formed church in Jerusalem called together a prayer meeting. And as a part of their prayer, well, here it is. Let me quote it to you. Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Well, think of it. Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, Israel, breathing out hatred, lies, injustice, murdered Jesus by nailing him to a cross, and in so doing, did exactly what God had predestined they should do. Now, I know some of us are going to wonder about free will, but before you go there, understand that Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And you might remember Jesus' own words recorded in Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Did you notice the word must? The Son of Man must suffer at their hands. It was determined, or as Acts tells us, it was predestined by God. God wasn't silent. He brought this about. But out of that darkest and grossest evil that men have ever done has come the greatest good that could ever be done in our lives. Somehow, human evil and God's infinitely perfect and just will were intertwined in the events surrounding the death of our Lord. Well, that's the conclusion, but let me now back off to the beginning. We've been studying the last part of the book of Genesis, and Jacob has just died and he's buried. The family has laid his body to rest at Hebron, where the other patriarchs and their wives were already buried. They've now come back to Egypt, and they now reside there. Let's begin with Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. That is to say, it may well be that Joseph never sought revenge against us while our father was alive for fear not to hurt our father but it may well be that he is simply biding his time. And that time is now, and there's nothing preventing him from doing to us exactly what he wants. The shoe is on the other foot now. 
When we had the power, we treated him with no mercy. Now he has the power. Over the years of my ministry, I've observed something that when I first saw it, it astonished me. But I began to see it so often that I came to recognize it as a pattern. One person will accuse someone else of some form of misconduct, be it lust or unforgiveness or pride or not caring about relationships or having a string of broken relationships or arrogance or people that person has offended in the past. I mean, you get the idea. An accusation is being made about an inner defect that is perceived in the other. And then, as one considers it, to the amazement of those who take the time to weigh these matters carefully, we find that the person making the accusation has just such a pattern in his or her own life. The person accusing someone of unforgiveness is the very person who's just shot through with bitterness of their own. And at least in my way of thinking, these kinds of accusations are a matter of projection. I mean, seeing these matters in ourselves causes us to project them onto others. You know, the psychology behind these matters is you know, quite complex. Is it that the accuser is somehow feeling vindicated if one person out there has more pride and arrogance than they think they have? See, I say this as a hint to all who are called by their church to investigate these attitudinal charges that people sometimes make against others. Find out more deeply about the patterns of life of the person making the accusation. Learn what motivates those charges, and you're going to learn a lot. Now, in the case of Joseph's brothers, we have to ask, what led them to such a conclusion? I mean, did they see in Joseph a deep underlying seed of bitterness? Nothing in the Genesis text even comes close to indicating that. But if we go back to Genesis 49, we'll see a, a great deal of unregenerate attitude in the brothers. You know, Jacob called his oldest son Reuben. He called him unstable as water. He called Simeon and Levi men of anger and violence and cruelty. He called Dan a viper along the path and even sighed awaiting God's salvation. So was Jacob looking for salvation and redemption among his own sons? Of course, Jacob doesn't say harsh things about all of the 11, but he does say them about the leadership of the 11. He, he still sees a great deal of anger and bitterness and tempestuousness and a willingness to use deceit and violence to get their way. See, men who are that way can't imagine that all the other men out there wouldn't act exactly as they do. It's, it's the world they live in. Years ago, I remember being called into the home of a couple that was at the point of crisis. It was a crisis that I'm sad to say did destroy their marriage. The husband had been having a secret sexual relationship with another woman, and when I arrived at the home that day, I thought the situation was still hopeful. If there were genuine repentance and a willingness to humble himself and become accountable, well, I could see that it might be possible to save that marriage and heal that family. But the man in question, well, he immediately began to accuse me. You're a man, he said, and don't you lie to me. If you had a chance for an affair and knew 100% that you'd never get caught, you'd do it too. I was astonished. A man committed to sexual impurity couldn't imagine any other man not reacting exactly as he had done. And so the brothers have come to assume that Joseph has been biding his time. He's been outwardly gracious toward them, but they knew what men did when the time was right. Real men even the score. 
And so they're genuinely afraid. So let's keep reading Genesis 50, verse 16 to 17a. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father has commanded before he died, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. So the real question here is this, did Jacob actually leave such a command before he died? You know, the book of Genesis gives no indication that he did. I suppose it's possible, but in that case, you you would have expected that Jacob would have secured that promise directly from Joseph himself. And after all, you'll remember that Jacob demanded that Joseph swear him an oath that he would not bury him in Egypt, but rather in Hebron. What I'm saying is that when Jacob wanted something from Joseph, he seems to have had no difficulty at all in approaching him and demanding it of him and even making him swear an oath. And so I think it's highly likely that this message that was sent to Joseph is a fabrication. It's an outright lie. Jacob actually said nothing of the kind. See, I notice also that the brothers don't even have the confidence to approach Joseph directly. They send him a message. You see, at this juncture, given the past evil that was done to him and given the present attempt to deceive him, Joseph might have thought, look, these guys have got it coming. You know, there's an old proverb, and I have no idea where it comes from, but the proverb says, revenge is a dish best served cold. It means that revenge that is delayed by time and then executed long after the heat of anger is gone, well, that's the most satisfying kind of revenge of all. How about you? If it were in your hand to finally even the score, would you do it? Indeed, let me put it even stronger. Why wouldn't you? And that really is the situation that Joseph finds himself in. If God finally hands his enemies into his hands, why not see this as God's justice? These brothers have it coming. Why be like Jesus who called us to forgive our enemies? I mean, if you do that, your enemies will learn nothing and evildoers will be emboldened to do the same. What is it about Joseph and what is it about the ways of God that gave Joseph the grace to forgive his brothers? That's what we're gonna see in the rest of this passage. Over the past months, I've been asked a few of the same questions a number of times. Typically, they would be, how is Dr. Neufeld? And the answer is, great. He's working from home for the most part, but well and safe. Another question is, how is the ministry doing financially? Well, to that I say, God is good. He provides. Gracious partners across the country continue to give, and we're so appreciative. Times are uncertain, and we must tighten our belts, so to speak, but we walk in confidence. So thank you for staying in touch. Thank you for supporting in prayer. And thank you to those, including our monthly partners, who continue to give regularly. And for those who are not able at this time, we understand. Please keep praying for the ministry. To learn more about the Bible teaching resources available through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, or to support the ministry with a financial gift today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I'm reading Genesis 50, 17b to 18. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. 
See, after having sent a note to Joseph, they claim to have had a message from their dead father, and the brothers now directly appear before Joseph. This now is the first time they have ever asked him to be forgiven. See, that's tragic, but it's only motivated by fear here. And I also notice that they don't say, please forgive us or please forgive your brothers. They say, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And so in desperation, they make an appeal. If you kill us, you're going to be killing God's servants. I I actually don't know how to read this line. Is it an honest appeal or is this just another attempt to protect themselves? Well, we don't know, but we do know that they're not now hiding what they've done. They call their past action of selling Joseph into slavery a transgression. And to transgress is not just to sin. It's actually a stronger word than that. It means to intentionally disobey. It's a deliberate act. It's knowing where God's laws line up and then stepping over that line with a full understanding of what that action implies. Now, a lot of deceit has gone on, but this one line, forgive our transgression, is as honest as these men have ever been. And when Joseph hears that, he begins to weep. And we wonder why he weeps. And I think it's because up to this point, he's never heard them say that to him directly. He has expressed a willingness to forgive, but they've never said we're sorry. So let's go all the way back to chapter 45. After Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers for the first time, that text tells us that they're dismayed or that they're terrified. I mean, here's the brother they sold into slavery, and now he has their lives in the palm of his hands. And at that time, Joseph has been very clear about his intentions. I'm going back to chapter 45, verses 4 and 5. It says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. In other words, I have come to know that God's sovereign plan sent me here. I have come to the land of Egypt because of the predestined plan of God. See, at that point, Joseph had uttered no animosity against his brothers. He did test them to find out if they would sell out another of their brothers. And remarkably, at that time, they seemed willing to even lay down their own lives for Benjamin. Something had changed in their lives, and that change really was wonderful. But now men who still struggled with their own bitterness and revenge and can't imagine that over the years, Joseph's forgiveness to them was complete and final. I mean, they can't imagine that he has reconciled himself to both forgiveness and to the view that this was God's plan. I mean, they must have asked, were the old demons of anger and revenge still haunting Joseph? That's what they suspected. And so in a final act of humility, they fall down before Joseph and say, we're your servants. They could also be saying, we're your slaves. You know, yes, we once sold you to be a slave, and we are quite willing now to be your slave today. So if you're looking for revenge, would not this moment have been just delicious? I mean, all of you who have been deeply hurt by someone and have never been able to forgive them, I mean, you might look at this and say, man, I wish this scenario would happen to me. I know exactly what I would do. Notice how the matter resolves itself. Let's read Genesis 50, verses 19 to 21. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. See, these lines, if you don't know it, hold the key for all of us to forgive our enemies. Joseph does four things, and let's consider each one in turn. First, notice he says, am I in the place of God? See, what does that mean? Joseph is deeply convinced that when it comes to personal wrongs, it is God who ultimately judges these matters in the last day. Paul says something very similar in Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Please note that this passage is not speaking about justice in human law courts. You know, if someone commits murder, we don't say, well, God will judge it in the last day, leave it to God. Rather, we know that in the day in which we live, God has appointed civil magistrates to ensure that there's justice and laws are kept. Now, this is a matter of personal wrongs, hurts, injustices on a personal level, slander that results in being fired, and all those kinds of things. You know, God's servants know that these matters must be left until the final day. It's a deep conviction in the heart. Joseph has that conviction. Second, Joseph acknowledges the full measure of evil that was done to him. You meant it for evil, he says. It was you who were sold to do evil, and you did this evil to me. So here's an important point. We don't ever get to forgiveness by forgetting what was done. You can't forgive until you face the reality of the evil that was done to you. Third, and and this is key, and this is the central point. Joseph says, but God meant it for good. See, I don't think we can ever get to forgiveness as long as we say God had nothing to do with this. Remember Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love him. And furthermore, God is meticulously sovereign over all things, even over the evil that men do to us. God oversees it. No, no, says Joseph. God intended this thing to happen to me. Now, some of us stumble at that point. We can't imagine that God would be involved in some endeavor that hurt us. But if you can't imagine that, what then do you make of the wounds of Jesus? Or the words of Isaiah the prophet that it was the Lord's will to cause him to suffer? Is it really the case that you can't see that when some men seek to do evil, God uses those very evil acts for the sake of his glory for the sake of our long-term good, and for the sake of a great blessing to many. And Joseph saw this point with absolute clarity, and that point dominated the way he thought. And fourth, and this is the result of his thinking, he tells them not to fear him, and then he treats them with grace. You know, in this sense, Joseph is so much like our Lord Jesus. Or let me put it this way, the greater Joseph, Jesus, after he was nailed to the cross, treated us with grace, for Jesus never took his eyes off of the sovereign plan of the Father. The forgiveness is done. It's accomplished. And the brothers here in Genesis never need to wonder again. The matter has been settled. And with that, Moses brings the long story of Genesis to an end. And here I'm reading now Genesis 50, 22 to 26. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you 
and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. You know, the book of Genesis began with the creation of Adam, and it ends with the death of Joseph. And in reality, this book sets the stage for the rest of our Bible. The stage is now completely set, and the greater action still now awaits. Israel will become a nation in Egypt, but they will become a slave nation. They will need God to rescue them from slavery, even as we need God to rescue us from the slavery of sin. Eventually, Israel would emerge from Egypt, and as they did, they carried Joseph's bones with him and buried him rightfully in the promised land at Shechem. The story of Genesis has come to an end. The promise of the book that Israel will become a great nation, that it stands blessed in her relationship to God, and that it will inherit a land as its own will all be accomplished. But that's only the foundation. The climax is that this very story is the basis for the salvation of the world. As Joshua would later say when he approached his own death, Joshua 23, verse 14, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. It therefore seems fitting that the very last story Moses tells us in the book of Genesis has been the story of forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption. Indeed, this story has certainly come to pass. Not one promise of the Lord our God has failed. John, thanks so much for a great series. In fact, now you've completed messages on the entire book of Genesis. So let me get some personal feedback. What are one or two of the great lessons of life you've learned for yourself that you've pulled out of the book of Genesis? Well, because the Bible uh, took so long in writing, 1,600 years, um, we do know that uh, what we have in our Bible um, is the fulfillment of so many different promises. So I, I get the lesson of the faithfulness of God. You know, from Abraham, I learned that my faith is counted to me as righteousness. My righteousness is not in what I have done, but rather my confidence in what God has done. So uh, there's that. And then there's also this whole thing that everything but everything points in the end to Jesus. So, I mean, those are three important lessons that come to me from Genesis, and they do sustain me. Thanks, John, and thanks for a wonderful series. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Dr. Newfeld, and I want to express how blessed and overwhelmed I've been by letters, notes, emails, even phone calls of appreciation that we've all received. We consider the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada as a true privilege and calling, and it would seem God has allowed us to make a difference for decades in the lives of Canadians. This month is a significant one in the Back to the Bible calendar, a month where we reach out across the country to ask for you to help in a noteworthy way to sustain this ministry. You've probably heard others on the broadcast share the specific financial targets, so you likely know what they are, but can I simply ask, if you're able, consider a special gift to the ministry this month. We'd be so grateful. Just call 1-800-663-2425 
or visit our website at backtothebible.ca. We appreciate you and may the Lord bless you richly.